0: Let me provide a quick recap of Jesus' ministry provided to us in Mark chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15 summarizes the first year of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry. And the main thing we learn from these two verses is that Jesus, above and beyond everything else, was a preacher. Verses 16 through 20 documents Jesus calling his disciples to follow him. So we see his mission was to preach. We see his team being assembled, the A team, the apostles. Verses 21 through 39, the verses we'll be looking at this morning, presents for us a glimpse into the typical day with Jesus. Jesus. It's in some ways these verses provide us a day in the life of Jesus. Have you ever kind of thought, I wonder what Jesus' day was like? I wonder what his life was like? I wonder what hanging out with Jesus, observing his ministry, being even on the inside. I wonder what just a day in the life of Christ, Jesus Christ, would be like. Mark, in these verses, provides us just that. So let's dive right in. Verse 21 of Mark chapter 1. Then they which lets us know that the disciples, his team has been assembled. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. Now, as mentioned, we have three strategies when we're approaching their narration provided to us by Mark. We'll look at the scene of activity first. Then we'll look at any relevant questions, if they exist. Sometimes they exist, sometimes they don't. And then we'll make some simple observations. So let's begin with our scene of activity. We're told they went into Capernaum. Jesus is traveling the region of Galilee, which is an area surrounding the Sea of Galilee. He's with his disciples Mark has only mentioned Andrew, Peter, James, and John. But we can conclude at this point, one year into ministry, Jesus has called the other eight disciples to be his followers as well. And as he's making his way throughout the region of Galilee, around these various towns surrounding the Sea of Galilee, we're told he makes his way to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum, literally, the city of Nahum was a town of approximately 15,000 people. But in many ways, though it was 15,000, and we might think that wasn't very many, because of the way that things functioned around the Sea of Galilee, it was so overpopulated, it didn't really matter. When you go to Israel, one of the things that you notice that kind of surprises you is how compact this region really is. You're looking at the Sea of Galilee, and it's seven miles wide, 14 miles long. And you're like, I can see all the way around from one vantage point. And you can even see the ruins of Capernaum and you're there. And as you're making your way around the Sea of Galilee, they're just all these towns. And so, yes, the population of Capernaum was 15,000, but it was butted up against other towns. The population of the region, it's been speculated to be two to three million people. It would kind of like saying from Gwinnett County that you made your way to Lilburn. Yeah, Lilburn might be a small place, but in reality, it butts up to Snellville and Lawrenceville and all these other villes, Loganville and and whatnot. And so it's all compacted, lots of people. That's the point, Capernaum, located on the Sea of Galilee, was situated below what was called Mount Arbel at the base of what is referred to as the Valley of the Doves. And this is strategic, because the Valley of the Doves uh, was an important highway that connected the Sea of Galilee and all of these people with the Mediterranean Sea, which was a main source of trade and commuting. The Valley of the Doves pops out there at Capernaum, it connects back to the Mediterranean Sea, cuts across the countryside, One of the stops on this highway was a little town by the name of Nazareth. It was basically a truck stop, which means that because of its great location, anyone in Galilee wanting to make their way to the Mediterranean had to go through Capernaum. It was kind of the gateway to the highway, which meant that everyone was making their way at some point through Capernaum, a great place for Jesus' ministry. It was also strategic because it was easy access to his home, to visit family there in Nazareth. Capernaum is a great location, and Jesus makes his way there. The second bit of observation in regards to our scene of activity is that we're told that in this day in the life of, that on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught immediately, on the Sabbath. The Sabbath. You know, though God commanded in the law of Moses that every seventh day, the people of God were to rest on what was called the sabbat or the Sabbath day, you need to understand that the concept of the Sabbath didn't just exist in the law. There was a precedent established way before the law was ever given to Moses back to creation. If you recall, God created six days, and on the seventh, he did what? He rested, not just in the sense that it was a healthy thing to take a day off, but God set a precedent of enjoying the fruit of my labor. You know, we often think of like, I don't need to take a day off. I'm a man. I'm real strong. I don't need to rest. The reality is, is you need to take a day off not just to rest, but to enjoy What you've been working for, to enjoy family, to enjoy friends, to enjoy the fruit of your increase. The Sabbath was an important day, not only in the law, but just in a precedent established in Scripture. And because God defined a day in the book of Genesis as evening and morning were the first day, if you recall, the Sabbath day of rest, or what we would refer to as Saturday, actually began... Friday night at 6 p.m. The Jews saw their day beginning at nighttime and ending in the daytime, okay, as established in the book of Genesis. The Sabbath, or this day in the life, the Sabbath would begin 6 p.m. on Friday night and would conclude Saturday at 6 p.m. According to the Talmud, it was as soon as it was dark enough that you could see or observe four stars that's when the Sabbath would begin. And as soon as on Saturday night, you could see and observe four stars, that meant the Sabbath was over. Now in the day uh, in the life of Jesus, his morning we're told begins with a trip to the synagogue. So it's Saturday morning. The Sabbath has been taking place for already about 12 hours. Now the synagogue, and, and you gotta kinda bear with me here because when i approach scripture it's often preachers can get into a trap of being caught within their own education and their own christianese and what i mean by that is we say sabbath and we just kind of assume everyone knows what that means when in reality is if you're not a student of scripture you haven't been studying for what you might have no idea in addition to that if you say the synagogue what's a synagogue Like, yes, I might know what a synagogue is in some of you, but that's not necessarily, in my opinion, something that's universally understood. What is the synagogue? As a matter of fact, if I were to ask you for the biblical justification for the synagogue, you would stumble, but you would say it's there. It's not. Never mentioned in the Old Testament. The synagogue. The synagogue was the local Jewish community's place to congregate. To worship God and to read from the Holy Scriptures on the Sabbath. But throughout the rest of the week, the building of the synagogue was a place that was central for education and operated in so many ways like a Jewish community center. Now, in the Old Testament, we find no mention of the synagogue being commissioned through the law of Moses. It's not mentioned, it's not commissioned. The formation, its operation, the local synagogue is not in Scripture. The Jewish place of worship, you should note, was never intended to be anywhere other than where the presence of God dwelt, which was the tabernacle, and then later what? The temple. Now, most scholars place the origin of the synagogue during the Babylonian captivity. Not only had the temple been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, but the Jews had been scattered across the empire. And in order to maintain their national and religious heritage while in exile, these small pockets of Jewish uh, communities, Jewish populations, spread out across the Babylonian empire would gather together on the Sabbath for worship. The term synagogue literally means a bringing together or a gathering of people. The word synagogue didn't actually refer to a building, but was intended to describe this gathering where the Jews out of their homeland would gather to worship God and to read from Scripture and to spend time in prayer. The term would later evolve into a word used to describe the building and not just the people that gathered in the building. The, the evolution of the term synagogue is very similar to the term church. Church also means a gathering. And we often say the church isn't the building, but the church is the people, right? But what do we say we're doing on Sunday morning? Going to church. You see how it can be identified in two ways. Even after the Persians allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, and Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. The sad reality of the Old Testament history is that many of the Jews who had been exiled during the Babylonian Empire never actually returned and instead chose to remain in exile and they used the synagogue as their place of worship rather than the new temple because of the logistics of traveling to the new temple. The Talmud stipulated that if a town had a Jewish community containing more than 10 Hebrew males, it was required for a synagogue to exist in that town. It's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts would note visiting synagogues located in Damascus, Salamis, Antioch, Iconium, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and even Ephesus. Now, because you were only allowed to walk so far on the Sabbath, every town in the Sea of Galilee, the Galilean region, all of these little towns, because you could only walk so far, every town had their own synagogue. We're told in another gospel account that Capernaum itself had one of the most elaborate synagogues in the entire region because it had been built by a wealthy Roman centurion. Now, upon arriving at the synagogue, Jesus was asked to share from the Scriptures. Most local synagogues didn't possess what we would call a local pastor, but instead had what we would call the ruler of the synagogue. And it was this man's job to unlock and lock the building, to sweep up the place, to take out the trash, turn on the lights, pay the bills, care for the grounds, set the order of service, etc. Most synagogues themselves, the service itself was traditional, ritualistic, and automated. I've gone to an actual uh, Jewish service in a synagogue. My brother Nick had a a college paper, he had to visit some other religion. So we went down to North Druid, went to a Jewish synagogue, we were welcome, we had to sit where the Gentiles sit, which was great and all that, me being a Gentile. um, I'm all right with that, I eat pork, cool. Um, But we, we observed the service, and the service doesn't even need a leader. It's very traditional, ritualistic, it's automated. Everyone knows when to sing, when to stop, when to stand, when to sit. It's very natural how the service itself takes place. Now, when the time comes for the scriptures to be opened up and read, one of the elders, one of the old guys of the synagogue, of the community, one of the pillars of the community, would be given the opportunity and the privilege to read from the scriptures. And this might change every Sabbath. The ritual would only be placated if a rabbi happened to be in town. Now, the rabbi at that point would be given the opportunity not just to read from the scripture, but then to comment upon the text. Jesus, being a rabbi, makes his way on the Sabbath to Capernaum. He enters the synagogue, and it was only natural and customary that a rabbi, being Jesus, would be asked to share. This is... What makes Jesus' approach, though, so radical from the normal rabbi? Verse 22, we're told that after he gets done speaking, reading the text and speaking, they, speaking of the people there in the synagogue, were astonished, they were amazed. It's a word that describes kind of a jaw-dropping moment. At what? At his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority And not as the scribes. The effect that Jesus' preaching had on people is that they were astonished. And why? Because he spoke as one having authority. The scribes and the rabbis only taught the general beliefs that were concerning the text. They would uh, go on and on and on about what one rabbi might say about the text, and, and then rabbi so-and-so and, and his beliefs on what the text might mean. They never actually made definitive statements of certainty, never did, but Jesus. Jesus didn't say what rabbi so-and-so would say about the text or what one commentator might, might say. He said what the text meant, what God was communicating. Thus saith the Lord. This is what God, this is his word for us. It was radical. They were astonished. Their jaws hit the floor. He's teaching with authority and with power. He told the people what the text said. He told them what God was communicating. He wasn't saying what another rabbi thought. Now, my simple observation from this first part of Jesus' day is that Jesus not just had authority, But Jesus gained authority. Jesus spoke with authority because he had authority, but he had authority because he gained authority. Sure, Jesus had authority because he was the son of God, no doubt. But I think the basis of Jesus' authority goes much much further and much more beyond just him being God. Though 100% God, we're told in Scripture that Jesus had limitations as a man, that Jesus willingly laid aside some of his divine attributes to come as a man. For example, Jesus was not omnipresent. It was one of the divine attributes that God possessed that Jesus had to lay aside to come as a man. He couldn't be everywhere at once. He was constrained to a physical body. In addition to that, he wasn't immutable, which means unchanging. Jesus changed. He grew up. His brain developed and formed. Jesus didn't come into the world as a 33-year-old man and never changed. His beard was perfect and never grew. Jesus changed. So he wasn't immutable. He laid aside certain divine attributes. One of those things is that Jesus didn't know everything. He was not all-knowing. As a man, he had the limitations of a human brain. His brain didn't possess the full knowledge of all things as a toddler. It's not as though that as soon as Jesus was able to speak, he began to unpack quantum physics before they knew what physics were or ever watched the show Quantum Leap. Like they just had no clue. Jesus, he grew. As a teenager, Jesus wasn't teaching in the synagogue. Luke chapter two gives us two important details concerning Jesus' developmental years that are important for us to establish. First, we're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. The word increase literally means to beat forward or to lengthen out by hammering. It's a word that's used in, uh, to, for metalworking, to beat out metal, to make it longer, to stretch it. Understand that Jesus as a child, as a teenager, as a young man, he spent his time studying and asking questions and growing in his knowledge of scripture. And note, studying for Jesus was just as mentally taxing and difficult as it is for us. He increased in wisdom and stature. It wasn't like it just came easy because he's Jesus. It was difficult. It was trying. He would get tired. His brain would hurt, but he worked forward. A little earlier in Luke chapter two, he tells us that for three days as a middle schooler, Jesus was sitting in the midst of the teachers there in Jerusalem, both listening to them and asking them questions and all who heard Jesus were astonished, that word astonished again, at his understanding and answers. Please note, before Jesus was a teacher, it is clear from scripture he was first a student. Jesus spoke as one who had authority, not only because he was God, but as a man. Jesus knew his stuff. Jesus knew his material. Why? Because it came naturally? No, because he took the time and invested the energy, the mental capacities to learn. Jesus faithfully attended church. He was dedicated in his studies of scripture. And by his hard work, he gained authority to teach and expound upon God's word. Now, this is why it's so important. Please follow me here. Many people shy away from sharing their faith or teaching God's word, maybe not from like the pulpit, but through like casual conversations with coworkers or family members or even your children because, and I've heard this excuse, it's just not my gifting. Zach, I'm just not a teacher. I'm just not a communicator. Here's the problem with this. Here's the irony, the same person that will use the excuse for why they don't have a devotion with their kids and teach their kids the Bible, why they don't teach the Bible to their coworkers? why they don't communicate or talk about the things of God with the excuse that I'm not a teacher. These same people, it blows my mind. They will talk your ear off about fishing or about their car, their remodeling. They'll talk your ear off about the problems with the Braves or the dog's upcoming season. I know people that can talk your ear off about last season's Dancing with the Stars. Or, and I don't know why you would ever want to, the latest Linux operating system. Shoot me. But people can do that. People will talk about anything. You see, here's the deal. People can rattle off statistics and stats to validate every point or position they hold when it comes to things that they like, things that they enjoy. But when it comes to Scripture, they're not able to share their faith because they can't communicate or they aren't a teacher. No, that's hogwash. The reason they can't share is because they've never taken the time to become an expert. They've never taken the time to learn. Jesus, he had authority as God, no doubt. But he gained authority because he he learned and he invested. He made Scripture his hobby so he could talk your ear off about it. Do you love God's word that much? That you could talk about the things of the Lord from scripture or about what God's speaking to you from his word, just like he can about the big bass you caught or the new boat you purchased or the new game. The truth is that everyone can talk about the things they know. You're an expert in the things you're invested in. Jesus had authority because he gained authority. And if you want to share God's word with the people around you, and you should want to do that, by the way. It's your responsibility. You should study. You should learn. You know, you should become an expert. And then, and then share. Now, while Jesus was teaching the people, he's finished his Bible study, this day in the life of Christ. We're told in verse 23 that there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I I hear that like deep demon voice, like, like freaks you out. But Jesus We're told he rebukes him and he says, be quiet, come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed this poor man, cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Our scene of activity. Jesus is finishing his Bible study. He's been teaching. The service is over. He's greeting the people. People are coming up, little old ladies. We just love that Bible study so much. There's a guy in line with wigging out eyes, right? Like, oh no, here he comes. And he comes up and he freaks out. This demon approaches Jesus and he causes this huge disruptive commotion. And Jesus looks at the man and he tells the demon to be quiet. Literally, be muzzled. Or maybe in in, in our common vernacular, You might translate this, that Jesus saw the demon and said, shut up and get out of him. Very strong words used by Jesus here. Now the demon reacts violently, convulsing the man. He's crying out. But ultimately, the demon exits this man in obedience to the commands of Jesus. Now this is why the reaction of everyone there after the church service We're told they're all amazed, verse 27, and they they, they begin to question among themselves, saying, what is this? What in the world is happening? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, not only is he teaching, but he's commanding unclean spirits, and they obey him. They listen, and immediately, that day, immediately, it wasn't like later on, like boom, Twitter blows up in that moment. Like you will never believe what just happened after church. Demon man, convulsing, crying out. And Jesus is like, boom, demon gone, unreal. And his fame immediately that day spreads out throughout not just Capernaum, but the entire region of Galilee. It was a pandemic of an idea. His fame immediately spread my first observation. And I'm not going to comment too elaborately on this observation because I don't want to get myself into trouble. But I have to at least point out that a demon-possessed man attended the synagogue service. He sat through an entire service before causing a stink. And no one knew the man was possessed, and it only became obvious he was possessed once he created a huge disruptive commotion. Don't create huge disruptive commotions after church. Second observation, the demon, the demon had no doubts who Jesus was and a room full of doubters, skeptics. I mean, in the midst of a synagogue full of people who were trying to figure out who Jesus actually is, the demon knew with complete certainty. He declared, you are, he uses an awesome title, He says, you are the Holy One of God. Now, this is one of the reasons that I think the common identification of a Christian as a believer is actually very misleading and can be very confusing. Obviously, the biblical understanding is that a believer is someone who not only believes the right things, but then actually acts upon their beliefs. But, Without that context, many people, I'm afraid, see themselves as believers and thus Christians only because they believe intellectually many of the basic biblical doctrines. But these beliefs have no actual real effect on their lives day to day. And they've, they've misled themselves. The demon, the demon was the only believer in the audience, he believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Holy One of God. He didn't doubt creation. He didn't doubt Jesus' authority. He didn't doubt Jesus' divinity. He didn't doubt any of these things. He knew exactly who Jesus was, and he was not shy on telling you. But was he saved? No, not at all. You know, James chapter 2, verse 19 tells us, you believe There is one God. You believe intellectually, you believe. You have this understanding, this belief that Jesus is the son of God. He died on the cross. He rose three days later, on and on and on. You believe these things? Great, good, you do well. For even the demons believe and they tremble. Guys, understand that salvation, being saved, really being a believer and being a Christian is not just that I have an intellectual understanding, but that what I believe intellectually has changed my life has set a new course. I agree with David Guzik when I think the best phrase to use is not believer or even Christian truthfully, but follower of Jesus. Because that denotes not only belief, but also action that I am a follower of Christ. My third observation is that, well, there's power in Jesus's words. I mean, you can't read this section of scripture and not exit with that kind of observation. Now, you should understand, exorcisms weren't unique in Jesus' day. I mean, there were all kinds of various techniques and traditions and rituals that the rabbis, that the priests would use to expel demons. But the way in which Jesus dealt with the evil spirit is what set him apart from his contemporaries. And why we see the reaction, we did. Jesus needed no ritual He needed no technique. Jesus spoke a command, and the demon obeyed and left. It's interesting that this is the first miracle that Mark records for us. I know. We've been like four weeks in Mark chapter 1. This is the first miracle that we're actually witnessing. And why does Mark use this as his first miracle? I think because it illustrates the power of Jesus' word. Jesus spoke, and and even the demons obeyed. God's word, there's power to transform. There's power. Let's continue on. Verse 29. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, still all the same day, we're told that they entered the house of Simon and Andrew. James and John are there. Simon's wife's mother, mother mother-in-law, which means Peter, was married, uh, was sick with a fever, and they told Jesus about her at once. And so Jesus came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and we're told that that she served them. Now, our scene of activity, after speaking, after Sunday service, Sabbath service, after, you know, ministering to the people there in the synagogue, after dealing with a little post-service commotion, you know, Jesus does whatever your pastor wants to do, and that's to go to a friend's house, break bread, eat, have lunch, turn on the Braves game and catch a nap. That's kind of, I think, Jesus' plan here for the afternoon. So he arrives, Peter's house, and as he's getting settled in, it's brought to his attention that Peter's mom, who's probably in a back room someplace, Peter's mother-in-law, is sick with a fever. Now, Dr. Luke, Luke's account, calls it a great fever. And historically, it's probably a form of malaria. Now, Mark tells us that upon being brought, there's this need, that Jesus goes into the room that she's sleeping. He grabs her by the hand. And I see this in a very tender sense. He lifts her up, he helps her out of bed, and immediately, immediately she was healed of her fever. Now, my first observation here is that there is power in Jesus's touch. Like exorcisms, healings were also quite common in Jesus's day. The scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, there were all kinds of Techniques and traditions and rituals that they would use to try to heal people of sickness and fever. But the way that Jesus healed people, it's what set him apart from his contemporaries. Jesus needed no ritual, he needed no technique. We're told he simply took her by the hand, lifted her up. He didn't even need to say anything. If I went in and, and like, you'd be like, maybe you're picking on the sick person. Jesus was healing. She gets up and immediately she's completely healed to the point that she serves. Have you ever had a really bad fever? You know, and the fever finally breaks. You know, the fever's gone. But you're tired at that point, right? I mean, when your body's been battling a fever, you're tired. I mean, you still want to sleep for a while and just relax. Her response, she was not only just so healed from the fever, but her energies were restored so that she she would serve. This is an incredible healing. Now, if the first miracle Mark records illustrates the power of Jesus' word, then the second miracle, this healing of Peter's mother-in-law, it demonstrates the healing power of Jesus' touch. The power of his word and the power of his touch. Now, at evening, verse 32, when the sun had set, now this means that it's 6 p.m., Okay, it's 6 p.m. The Sabbath is now over. The Sabbath has come to a close. So people are now allowed to move freely. And we're told that they brought to Jesus all who were sick and those who were demon possessed. And the whole city was gathered together outside of the door. And Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons. He did not allow these demons to speak because they knew him. Matthew tells us that Jesus actually spent way into the evening, way into the night, he healed everyone that came. So the whole town. And in the morning, so we're still in about a 24-hour period, having risen a long time before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him, they searched for Jesus. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But Jesus said to them, Let us go to the next town, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And Jesus was preaching in the synagogues throughout all of Galilee and casting out demons. Now, don't forget, we're looking at the same day, the day in the life of Jesus. And upon hearing about the morning scene, right? Twitter's blown up based upon what's happened at the synagogue, the healing of the demoniac. Word has spread throughout Capernaum and all of Galilee what's happened. Mark and Matthew's accounts are clear that as soon as the Sabbath was over, 6 p.m., people are looking at their clock. As Soon as the time came, the whole city gathered. Everyone came to where Jesus was, the house of Peter. The crowd could have easily numbered 15,000. Could have. And Jesus stays up well into the night, healing and ministering to everyone that came. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus was tired when he looked out to see a crowd forming. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He catches that weighted nap. He wakes up, rubs the sleep out of his eyes. He looks out and boom, there's this huge crowd. You know, one sermon and two supernatural miracles would have been enough for the normal ministry. I mean, the truth, full disclosure. I teach here at 316 on Sunday mornings. I teach another service to a group of high school students on Sunday evenings, and I'm ready to take a whole day off come Monday. The whole day. But Jesus... Jesus was not deterred, not deterred even in the slightest. When things eventually wrapped up and everyone called it a night, what then does the text tell us Jesus does? He does something unconventional. When the natural reaction to the day's activities would have been, you know, after a long day and a late night, sleeping in, recouping, we're told that Jesus instead arises a long while before daylight. We have no idea what time specifically, 3, 4 a.m. We're told that he departs to a solitary place. He gets alone by himself and he prays. After frantically awaking to a missing Jesus, Eventually, Peter and the guys, they track Jesus down. They express the excited atmosphere created by the night before in Capernaum. They tell Jesus that the whole town's a buzz over what's occurred, but instead of returning to build off of this new momentum, Jesus explains to the 18 that it's time for them to leave Capernaum and push into new areas that had not yet been reached. Now here's my first observation. And this is where we're going to be concluding our message this morning. But my first observation to the verses that we just read is that that we need to consult God before making important decisions. I know that might seem like a no-brainer, but really, sometimes we make really dumb decisions and we're like, man, knew I forgot something, should have consulted God. There are some who will say that after a long day, physical exhaustion, that Jesus found it more beneficial to spend time in prayer, you know, communication and connection with the Heavenly Father, than it was for Jesus to grab a few extra hours of beauty sleep. Now, though I can agree that the principle of prayer is important, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of prayer, I think these preachers and people who make this point when it comes to this text overlook the context of the passage. You know, the most important question concerning the story is why, why did Jesus wake up early to pray? Why, what was his reasoning? Did Jesus wake up early because he was dealing with the exhaustion experienced by the previous day's events? Or did he rise early in the morning to pray, to seek direction for what he needed to be doing for the current days events. I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial. If the issue was exhaustion, I'm sorry, but Jesus would have been better off to sleep in. Medically, I can prove to you that sleep is a critical part of life and remaining healthy. I am a firm advocate to sleep. It's a good thing. I love it. I enjoy it. Nothing like a long day, a good night's sleep. Sleep is important. If the issue is exhaustion, Jesus needed to take care of his body. It's the temple of the living God, right? So many people will use this as justification for like, I am so tired, but I'm gonna wake up early so I can pray and then be a waste for the rest of the day because yeah, you were praying, but now you go to work and you can't do anything. You're like five hour energies every two and a half hours because you just can't keep going. Like, if it's exhaustion, sleep. That's a good thing. But here's the deal. If the issue was guidance, making a decision, then the truth is that spending time in prayer is a much wiser utilization of one's time than sleeping in is. When Peter and the boys, I mentioned context, when they interrupt Jesus' time of prayer, their excitement expresses the issue and the decision That Jesus was facing. The issue? Stay in Capernaum where there was an excitement and energy about his ministry. An awesome day's events occurred. Or abandon the traditional wisdom of staying in Capernaum where the action was and instead move out into uncharted territories. Now, this is the decision Jesus is weighing. This is why he wakes up early. This is why he goes to a solitary place away from everyone else to seek guidance from God. He spent time with the Father because he needed counsel for an important decision, which leads me to my second observation. Jesus knew his purpose, and he never deviated from it. After a night of prayer, Jesus decided to keep the main thing the main thing. He could have been tempted to stay in Capernaum. Think about it for a moment. A wonderful work had started the day before. The local church loved his preaching. That might be reason enough to stay. 15,000 people had been ministered to and immediately created the core for an exciting new movement. The people were excited. They were a buzz. His ministry team was also pretty pumped up. If Jesus had come to start a movement or to create his own, Kingdom on earth. Capernaum would have been picture perfect. It would have been ideal. But this was not Jesus' purpose. Jesus explains to Peter and the crew that they needed to leave Capernaum and they needed to move into other towns so he could preach there also. That's what he says. But then listen to his explanation. Because for this purpose I have come. I think that the situation in Capernaum was the most dangerous day in Jesus' earthly ministry. I think the decision that Jesus faced that morning had much larger ramifications than any other decision Jesus might make till Gethsemane. Would Jesus allow the incredible success of the ministry in Capernaum to distract him from his purpose and his calling. It would have been easy to have stayed there. But after time with the Lord, he recognized that that's not my purpose. And Jesus always knew his purpose and never deviated from it. Which leads me to my final observation. You can't look at this day in the life of Christ and not note that Jesus never misses a moment to change a life. Whether it was the demoniac in the synagogue, a friend's mother-in-law, or the entire town coming over after hours, Jesus never turns away or refuses to work in the life of someone coming to him for healing. Jesus never turns away the honest seeker or declines an opportunity to change and work in a life. Jesus is never too tired, or too busy, or off the clock, or inconvenienced when it comes to ministry. As we learn in this one day, if Jesus, sees, if Jesus sees someone coming to him for healing, or to be freed from affliction, or to have their life transformed, Jesus will drop what he's doing, and he will either speak words of life or he'll reach out his hand and he'll heal and he'll restore, that he'll mend the brokenhearted. This morning, if you look at Jesus, that one day of Jesus' ministry, of which there were three years concerning and 2,000 years following, Jesus is never too busy to minister to you. This morning, if you feel depressed or oppressed or in the dumps or down and out or discouraged or if you're a seeker and you're lost and you feel as though you're broken and without hope, please know that Jesus, as he did in this day in Capernaum, is ready, willing, and most able to minister to your heart, to minister in your life, to transform. He's never too busy for you.